the wealthy Sackler family, owners of Purdue Pharma, is set to pay $6 billion for its role in America's opioid epidemic under a new deal. This is according to BBC. The sum is nearly $1.7 billion more than a previous settlement. Purdue, which filed for bankruptcy in 2019 amid uh, thousands of lawsuits, Welcome to the New Wave Entrepreneur, where we dive headfirst into Web 3.0, personal sovereignty, spirituality, and psychology. These conversations are unfiltered access to brilliant minds and actionable advice that will prepare you for the rapidly changing world. So jump in. The water is warm and the tide is rising. Uh, my friends, welcome back to another episode of the New Wave Entrepreneur. Daniel DiPiazza checking in with you here. It is Friday, March 4th, and you are here for the Friday recap. The weekly recap, we're talking about everything that's happened during the week and kind of just giving an overall of what's going on in the news and all the different things I like to talk about. And I was joking with Sarah earlier. I was like, you know, it's scary to me that for some people, my voice will be the one to give you the news for the day. And obviously, you know, go out and do your own research. Watch some CNN while you're at it. They should give you some good news. But I'm just taking the headlines that I see are interesting, especially with regard to business, to crypto, to world events, to things that are are, are piquing my attention and uh, are part of my private conversations off off air. So uh, let's just get into it. Some things that obviously are, are on everyone's mind uh, is what's going on with Russia and the Ukraine. And what we're seeing now is that Vladimir Putin is supposedly saying that Russia has no ill intentions and pleads for no more sanctions, according to a Newsweek article. Um, according to Newsweek, Russian President Vladimir Putin has said that Russia has no ill intentions for, towards Ukraine hours after Russian forces had seized Europe's biggest nuclear power plant. Now, that's interesting because we we are... I think all pretty clear in international law that seizing or attacking a nuclear power plant constitutes a uh, an act of war, a real threat. Putin made the comment that the state on the state-controlled Russia 24 news channel on Friday, uh, in which he called on neighboring countries to quote think about how to normalize relations. Quote: I want to emphasize once again, we have no ill intentions towards our neighbors, and I would advise them not to escalate the situation nor to introduce any restrictions. Quote: He said, according to the news agencies, you know, which is so funny because he's essentially from this, from this perspective, it feels like he's blaming everyone else <laughs> for, you know, for what's happening. He's saying, oh, well, if you don't escalate it, I won't escalate it. But that is, uh, that's, you know, that's one way to look at it. All of our actions, he says, quote, if they arise, always arise exclusively in response to unfriendly actions against Russia. Now, what are those unfriendly actions? That's what I'm curious of, because of, I haven't heard anything that Ukraine has done to Russia. Putin also says, we do not see any need to escalate the situation or worsen our relations. Putin's comments, this is Newsweek again, came more than a week after he ordered an invasion uh, that has caused numerous casualties and sparked a growing refugee crisis. Uh, a growing refugee crisis. The international community reacted with alarm when, I'm looking at this this name here, Zaporizhia nuclear power plant was reportedly shelled by Russian forces who captured the facility on Friday. The U.S. Embassy in Ukraine tweeted that attacking a nuclear power plant constitutes a war crime. Right. As he spoke uh, to Mark, a new ferry that would travel between its enclave in Kaliningrad 
and the rest of Russia, Putin also appeared to brush off the impact of sanctions imposed on his country. Quote, we will just have to move some projects a little to the right to acquire additional competencies, he said. In the end, we will even benefit from this because we will acquire additional competencies. Hmm, what's a competency? President Joe Biden has imposed new sanctions on eight members of the Russian elite, while the U.S. joined forces with European allies in kicking certain Russian banks out of the international SWIFT payment system. Now, this is interesting. I, I spoke about this earlier uh, on the podcast a few weeks ago or last week, rather, and I was thinking of the, the potential consequences of kicking Russia off of SWIFT, which is basically just the international banking system, monetary system. When you wire money from one account to another internationally, from an American account to another, it's going to be SWIFT pay. Uh, and, and many of the international banks use that. It's one of the primary payment networks in the world. There are others, though. Foreign min back to Newsweek, foreign ministers gathered in Brussels on Friday to discuss what measures to take against Russia as it continues its aggression in Ukraine. British Foreign Secret Secretary Liz Truss said she wants agreement from the international community to restrict Russian oil and gas exports. Meanwhile, the United Nations Human Rights Council said on Friday it has voted to set up an independent commission of inquiry into Russia's invasion. There appeared to be no breakthrough in talks between Russian and Ukrainian officials that might pave the way towards a ceasefire. Moscow has agreed to the need for, quote, humanitarian corridors to evacuate civilians and allow passage of aid. But Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov said on Friday there was no talk of Moscow and Kyiv signing any formal documents. So those are that's the re recent update, according to Newsweek. Interesting the way that it's spun, depending on who you're asking. If you ask Putin, he's saying that he's responding to retaliation. Retaliation to what exactly? Not sure. What type of aggression? Not sure. Um, and then you look at obviously the US's response and the UK's response and how we are very quick to come down on Russia. And I, I made this quote on Instagram or I made this, this point on Instagram. I think it's interesting that no one's talking about this or it's not talked about nearly as frequently. When a, when a white European country gets invaded or one white European country invades another white European country. Oh, the pandemonium, the pandemonium that breaks out amongst the world and the Bitcoin funds that get, that get created for the, for Ukraine and the Patreons and the GoFundMes and the international outrage and the, the, the stories abroad. Now, this is happening in brown countries, in Latin America, the Middle East, Africa, and Asia, all over the world, pretty much every year. And rarely does it get the same response that that this one move by Russia has gotten. And, and I'm not uh, minimizing anything that Russia is doing, but according to the news sources, according to news sources, how accurate can they be? But a few hundred people have died. Again, horrible and it's it's almost nothing in comparison to what's happening in so many other countries. But I've personally seen clips where there are news reporters saying things that are sometimes I would say I would say subtle racism that people don't even realize they're doing themselves. Saying things to the effect of imagine uh, imagine a problem like this happening in a civilized country in Europe, a Western civilized country. Let's say things like that, and it has the implication that other countries, these brown countries, uh, the ones that are constantly being invaded by other forces either close to them or abroad are not civilized. And I, I pick up on those things, you know, and um, and I just I think it's interesting too the way that the way that America reacts so strongly to anything that Russia does. But when we do the same thing, we don't have the same type of 
concern for our own actions. So for instance, I made a post on Instagram again. You can follow me at Daniel DiPiazza. And I made a post and I said something to the effect of what is the real difference between America invading uh, or, or rather Russia invading a sovereign Ukraine and America invading a sovereign Iraq. And I also made the point that we knew at the time Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11 uh, in terms of a terroristic threat. And they also didn't have any weapons of mass destruction. We knew that at the time and we know that now. And uh, we were happy to go into a sovereign country who had their own laws, their own system of government, their own, you know, we, we didn't agree with it, but they also had resources that we wanted. And we were happy to go in there and pretend that they had something to do with the war to place blame on them. Uh, and we knew the whole way that, that they had nothing to do, that we occupied that country for years. And um, what is the real difference between us doing that and Russia doing this to Ukraine? Well, there are differences in the historical context, but in one large country invading a smaller country that can't do anything against them, one sovereign invading another, there's not much of a difference. So it's just something to think about. And, and I, and I made a poll on Instagram. It seems like you guys agree with me, but I find the American exceptionalism tiring. I find the reporting of it tiring. I find the perspective uh, of the American uh, news media tiring. So I, I'm certainly wanting no one to get hurt. I, I think war is bad pretty much for everyone all around. And I also am curious to know what the real story is behind some of this. I've, I've seen interesting reports um, which I can go into later. I'm going to do some of my own research first before I, before I dive into this. But interesting reports that maybe what's going on in Ukraine uh, and what's going on with their president and some of the things that uh, some of the things that maybe they've been indicated for uh, or indicated with are not as kosher or as integrous as you might think. So I'm going to do some research on that before I report on it because hell, I'm not a real journalist here. I'm just reading the news and giving my opinion. So that's it for the Russia update. Let's go to kind of some business news. You know, I was looking and I saw a headline that caught my eye. Sackler family to pay $6 billion for role in US opioid crisis. This is according to BBC News. And if you guys are familiar with the show on Hulu, Dope Sick. This is a great show that follows the tragedy, the incredible tragedy, a great show that follows a real tragedy of the opioid crisis in America across much of the Rust Belt and just a lot of lower income areas as well as, well as um, you know, as well as high income areas as well. It, it's really kind of uh, swept the nation. But this opioid crisis that uh, has killed millions of people and was primarily promoted by this one company called Purdue Pharma, which was run by a family, name, family named Sackler. And this uh, entire drama was documented uh, in this in this show, Dope Sick, which is led by Michael Keaton and a phenomenal cast of, of people. But I'm not talking about the show. I'm talking about the actual case here. So, the wealthy Sackler family, owners of Purdue Pharma, is set to pay $6 billion for its role in America's opioid epidemic under a new deal. This is according to BBC. The sum is nearly $1.7 billion more than a previous settlement. Purdue, which filed for bankruptcy in 2019 amid uh, thousands of lawsuits, made drugs like Oxycontin, which is blamed for fueling the opioid crisis. Addiction to both legal and illegal opioid painkillers has been a serious ongoing problem in the U.S. The country saw nearly half a million deaths from overdoses between 99 and 2019, according to the U.S. Centers for Disease and Control Prevention. In his state, uh, or I'm sorry, in his State of the Union address Tuesday, President Biden pledged to make fighting what he called the opioid, opioid epidemic a national top priority. In 2020, Purdue 
pleaded guilty to criminal charges of its marketing of OxyContin, a painkiller it knew was addictive and was being widely abused. Some of the Sackler family have denied wrongdoing. A previous settlement against them reached in September 2021 was appealed by eight U.S. states. As part of the New Deal, the family is protected from all current and future civil claims, but the deal does not protect them from potential criminal cases. The $6 billion settlement will largely be used to fund opioid treatment and prevention programs in various states. The deal, which is the result of court-ordered mediation that began in January, was welcomed by a number of state attorney generals. So this just goes on to talk about how much uh, they've they've paid over the years. And this is interesting too, because I just want to bring to your attention, and I've talked about this in my writing and in my work. You know, you look at these pharmaceutical companies, these are the same companies that are also making the vaccines. So we're not equating one to the other here. I'm saying these are the types of decision makers who are deciding whether or not the drugs that we are ingesting in mass are healthy for us, are safe for us, are effective for us. And we've seen over and over and over again that their main, their main motivation is profit. This clearly shows that. And it's not any different at Pfizer or Moderna or um, AstraZeneca or Johnson & Johnson, unfortunately, because these are public companies that live off of their stock price, okay? It's just the reality. You know, if you have a flesh-eating monster, then you don't, you don't get mad when it eats your flesh. That's what this thing is. It, it, it's almost silly to blame a pharma company because this is what they do. Now, obviously, it would be great if they were for your best interest all the time. And I'm not even downing Western medicine. I'm just saying that when the incentives don't line up, that's when the user gets hurt. And typically, the incentive is money for these companies. And it just shows with a company like Purdue, they didn't care about the fact that they were killing people. They didn't care about the fact that they were getting people addicted and hooked to this, ruining families, ruining lives. They just want to make as much money as possible. Certainly, that's the case. That's why they're paying. And, um, you know, I hope they do get some criminal charges too, if, they, if, that's, if that's what they deserve. If that's what's found to be fair. So... Anyway, that's interesting. It's a, it was a great show too, by the way. There's some great criminal bad boy, bad girl, bad family shows. Another one is um, the documentary of Elizabeth Holmes who ran Theranos, the, the, blood, the blood diagnostic company that completely went under. <laughs> Crazy to watch. Watch that HBO documentary if you get a chance. Okay, so that's that's kind of a business highlight. What's another thing here I have? Uh, well, we can talk crypto news. One thing I saw that was very interesting is that Switzerland is aiming to become the next crypto utopia. Um, so a city in Switzerland, Lugano, has made a deal or, or basically has made Bitcoin itself and USDT legal tender. And so this is a progressive Swiss town that wants to become a cryptocurrency hub in the center of Europe. So this is according to Crypto Slate. The Swiss city of Lugano has announced today that it will recognize cryptocurrencies as legal tender. According to Michelle Folletti, the mayor of the city of Lugano, Bitcoin, uh, BTC and Tether, USDT, and Lugano's own LVGA points token will be recognized as de facto currencies. The announcement was made at Lugano's Plan B event where the city's key figures discuss implications of the progressive decision alongside uh, Paolo Adriano, the CTO of Tether. The decision to accept Bitcoin and Tether as legal tender was 18 months in the making, said uh, Pietro Poretti, 
the director of the city of Lugano. The city began experimenting with blockchain technology and cryptocurrency payments in, in late 2020 by establishing a loyalty program with his proprietary points token called LVGA. This is pretty cool. I think we're going to see more and more of this over the coming year and over the coming years as we get closer to more mainstream crypto adoption. It's it's It starts small and you can see the effect of small but powerful movements on larger populations. I mean, look, for example, in Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley is no longer in its heyday. I think we can very well say that. I don't think it will ever completely be drained of its resources, but it's certainly no longer the seat of power it once was. I think COVID did it in. However, it's a small area. That small area of the world has created so much innovation. And it's a relatively small zip code with a huge per capita net worth, I think. Now, what's interesting is that's a small area affecting a large amount of the world, almost the whole world. I predict similar things will happen with these crypto havens, these crypto safe cities. So for instance, Miami is becoming a crypto haven. You know, Austin is becoming a crypto haven. These are cities that are experimenting with City coins are experimenting with paying uh, government officials in crypto. I know the governor, governors of New York, or maybe the mayor of New York City and the mayor of Miami are getting paid in crypto. We're seeing just different types of uh, projects uh, being welcomed by not only public or uh, private entities, but also public government sectors. They want participation. So I think we're going to see uh, individual cities pop up and become more crypto friendly. And that set the trend and larger patterns for bigger and bigger adoption and more and more cities to join in. And uh, certainly it's cool to see areas of the world start to adopt currencies like Bitcoin, especially as real tender. That's interesting too. And it relates to what's going on in Russia. You know, going back to that, Coinbase CEO. So what is his name? Coinbase CEO uh, Brian, what is his name? Brian Armstrong. So there's, so, so essentially there is now a debate or conversation going on as to whether coin, Coinbase, Binance, and other centralized exchanges will have to kick off Russian users from their crypto platforms. As the U.S. sets sanctions on Russia, Part of the concern or the concern coming from maybe government entities or, uh, you know, concerned parties, I guess you could say, whoever's really concerned about this is that uh, Russia will use crypto to move money around if we freeze their swift pay payment platform methodologies or if we freeze their assets or if we freeze their access to capital or banks. And they're, you know, the U.S. is afraid that perhaps they could use crypto. And Brian Armstrong, the CEO of Coinbase, has made a few points. The first point he made is that, well, crypto is actually easier to track than other assets like gold or, you know, uh, commodities or even cash, dollars, you know, money. Bitcoin, just because of the ledger, you can track all of it. You can see where all of it's going and from where it came. So it's not really that great for Russian oligarchs and government moving money you know, on, onto different places. I think it'd be very easy to track. And basically what Brian Armstrong is saying, who is the CEO of Coinbase is saying, listen, you know, we're going to let regular Russian citizens continue to use our products, you know, as much as possible to continue to essentially use it as a lifeline. And this is according to Yahoo Finance. Coinbase Global Inc. isn't banning all Russian users for the moment, though would comply if the U.S. government decides to impose such a restriction, according to Chief Executive Officer Brian Armstrong. The cryptocurrency exchange will block transactions from IP addresses that might belong to sanctioned individuals or entities, as will other financial regulated uh, regulated financial service businesses, but won't it won't preemptively ban all Russians from using Coinbase. And he goes on to say that some ordinary Russians are using 
crypto as a lifeline now that the currency has collapsed. Many of them would like to oppose what their country is doing and uh, a ban will hurt them too. And if you're not up to speed on this, the Russian ruble has collapsed as has the Russian stock market um, with all the sanctions that are being imposed and just the threat of war on that side of the world. You know, it's, it's hurt the stock market. Some are saying the Russian stock market won't reopen. I'm sure it will. But Bitcoin is a safe haven, a safe haven for people who have their entire life savings, uh, or, or I guess they wouldn't be their entire life savings, but someone who luckily wouldn't have their entire life savings in rubles could have some in Bitcoin and use it at this time. And it may give you even a, a good use case of crypto. You know, when a company, uh, when a country's uh, currency collapses, this is the international currency system with a decentralized ledger that allows us to basically transmitted across many different types of uh, smartphone devices. It can be on computers. Uh, you don't need to have a government maintain it. It can't be hacked. It can't be taken over in a war. You don't need to have a specific specific type of, of technology to use it. There's lots of different ways you can adapt it. So anyway, the problem with this, with, with Brian Armstrong's comment is that kind of really just shows the limitations of a centralized exchange. I don't really fault him because again, similar to my example with the, the, the flesh eating monster, it is what it is. A centralized exchange is centralized. It has its benefits, which are it's really easy to use and navigate. There's some customer support. There are uh, a wide variety of assets to trade. It's relatively secure in comparison to other things. Uh, there are lots of benefits to having a centralized exchange. The, 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 benefit, the, the drawback is that Armstrong notes that if the government asks him to, he will, you know, he will ban all Russian IPs from being able to use Coinbase. And so basically he's saying, Hey, you know, I'm just doing what they tell me to, but I don't philosophically believe Russians should not be able to use it. So the average Russian citizen should, can use crypto as a way to exchange money to and from their country through Coinbase. So anyway, it's just an interesting philosophical debate as we think about the implications of Web3 and crypto and, you know, who should who should moderate the use of these technologies and what does it mean uh, to rely on something that is decentralized and where are the real use cases? So anyway, it's something I've been thinking about a lot. I've been seeing it in the headlines. That's pretty much it today. Those are the things that are drawing my attention. You know, obviously, if we're just talking national, uh, international news, the Ukraine thing is big, but I do think that it has an overarching implication on just what is happening with technology. Even the fact that, you know, when you look at when you look at the way war is being conducted in general, yes, Russia is shelling Ukraine. But in general, I think war is becoming much more digitized. It's becoming much more automated. It's becoming less about hot war person to person and more about and more about wiping out economies. Not that there isn't still going to be hot war, but I think especially when it comes to superpowers attacking each other, I think it's more beneficial for superpowers to use digital war because there's too much collateral damage with with physical war between superpowers. I think it's easy for a big country like Russia to attack a small country like Ukraine or a big country like the US to attack a small country like Iraq or insert the country somewhere in South America, somewhere in Asia. We attack countries all the time, Yemen, Syria, all the time. It's easy for us to do that and not expect retaliation. But between superpowers, I think it's probably unlikely to have a hot war. Although I think cold wars, which are already happening, monetary wars, policy wars, digital wars, perhaps uh, viral wars, you know, that's something to talk about another day. I think those are more likely. But these are the updates for the week. You know, we have a lot of stuff coming for you over the next uh, coming weeks on the show. As you know, now we're on every day 
everyday episodes, baby. I have wanted to do this for years and I finally figured out a system to be able to do it. Tomorrow, uh, we're doing some Saturday Q&A. Sunday, we have something coming up for you as well. I'll let you be surprised and excited about what we have going on. But make sure you check out the new wave entrepreneur.com to get all the updates. And obviously, if you haven't listened to the most recent updates on the episodes, you can go to uh, the blog and the Substack and check out all of our archives. You can check out the workshops we have that we're coming up that we're hosting. That's it. My friends, the water is warm. The tide is rising. So jump on in and let's get ready to surf this new wave. Daniel out and have a happy Friday. <laughs>